traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B-20, The God of Dusk King Herod Agrippa II heard the blast of trumpets and knew the Romans had taken Antonia Fortress. Just like Joshua's trumpets had brought down the walls of Jericho, marking the beginning of the Jewish nation, these trumpets would likely mark its end. All around him, soldiers donned their armor and rushed into formation, eager to storm the city and gain their plunder. As a Jewish king, Agrippa was likely far more conflicted. He'd already helped the Romans reduce countless cities, towns, and villages during their conquest of Judea. But of course, this was different. This was Jerusalem. Agrippa obviously knew the scriptures and the centuries of assault and plunder the city endured. Before the Hebrews, it was known as Jebus, stronghold of a Canaanite people who'd worshipped Shalim, the god of dusk. Facing the armies of warlords or masses of lawless Habiru, its rulers had called on Pharaoh for deliverance. Later, in the time of the Hebrew king Rehoboam, Pharaoh came as a destroyer, conquering the city and claiming the treasures of Solomon's palace and temple. Over the centuries that followed, it was predatory Aram or the northern tribes who'd remained the greatest threat. But it took the Assyrians to restore the lesson of the truly implacable foe. Standing atop Jerusalem's walls, hearing the taunts of Sennacherib's Rabshakeh, the Hebrew king Hezekiah knew he was powerless. In his despair, he prayed to Yahweh in the temple and an angel of the Lord laid waste to Sennacherib's armies. A century later, in another time of trial, Yahweh had withdrawn the city's protection. Twice the armies of Nebuchadnezzar encircled Jerusalem, until its walls were overcome, Solomon's temple destroyed, and the noblest of its citizens taken to Babylon. Under Cyrus of Persia came the Jewish return and foundation of the Second Temple, 
Fully restored in 18 BC by Agrippa's great-grandfather, Herod the Great. Unsurprisingly, in the years between, Jerusalem had known two additional conquerors. The Seleucid king Antiochus IV and Pompey the Great from the distant city of Rome. In a sign of things to come, Pompey boldly marched into the Holy of Holies, defiling it with his presence, then allowed Jewish priests to repurify the area and resume their ceremonies unimpeded. At the time, the Romans were awed by the mysteries of the East, and prone to tread lightly for fear of offending ancient gods. But in the aftermath of Caesar and Octavian, the Romans were only awed by themselves, and any fear was reserved for other Romans. During the previous year, that fear had proven well-founded. After parting with Titus at Corinth, Agrippa arrived in Rome in early 69 AD. In addition to visiting Titus's younger brother Domitian and uncle Sabinus, Agrippa also spent time with his own sister, Drusilla, wife of the former Judean procurator Marcus Antonius Felix. Agrippa was still in the capital when word came of Otho's suicide, and Vitellius claiming the title of Roman emperor. As he waited for Vitellius to arrive in Rome to express his pro forma devotion, Agrippa received a personal message from Vespasian. The general had been hailed as emperor in Judea and Egypt, and, a few weeks later, by the Syrian legions. King Sohamus of Emesa and King Antiochus of Comagene had also declared for Vespasian. The message had requested Agrippa's return to the east and the support of his tetrarchy in the growing rebellion. Without delay, Agrippa booked passage on a ship and was soon at Vespasian's side. Agrippa's loyalty to Rome was never really in doubt. After all, his own father, King Herod Agrippa I, had been raised by the emperor Tiberius and Agrippa had been taken in by Claudius after his father's untimely death. But with the fall of the Julio-Claudians, things had grown more complicated. Like his fellow kings, Agrippa's support for the Flavians was partly a matter of proximity, predilection, and well-honed survival instincts. But there were also personal considerations. While campaigning in Galilee and Galanitus, and even being wounded in the siege of Gamla, Agrippa had grown close to Vespasian's son Titus. He'd also come to know the former Galilean general Josephus, recently freed by Vespasian, and the flamboyant Comagenian prince Antiochus Epiphanes. In fact, the prince's marriage to Agrippa's sister Mariamne had made the two men brothers-in-law. It was also an open secret that Agrippa's sister Berenice was having an affair with Titus. And this gave Agrippa one additional incentive. A Flavian victory might bring the Herodians into the ruling family of Rome. With his allies assembled in Beritus on the Phoenician coast, Vespasian announced his plans. Aside from the basics recalling veterans, manufacturing arms, and minting coins to pay for both, his overall strategy had three parts. 
In Vespasian's name, the Syrian governor Gaius Licinius Mucianus would march on Rome and confront Vitellius. Vespasian and Titus would travel to Egypt to secure both its legions and grain supply. And embassies would be dispatched to the Parthians and Armenians to shore up Vespasian's eastern flank. It was decided for the time being that Jerusalem could wait. The most urgent action was deposing Vitellius, and Mucianus set off with 18,000 men. At the same time further west, a legate named Marcus Antonius Primus convinced two Pannonian legions to declare for Vespasian, then marched them toward Rome on his own initiative. Tacitus gives us a good character sketch of Primus that I'll repeat just for fun. He was vigorous in action, ready of speech, skillful in sowing difference among his enemies, powerful in stirring up discord and strife, ever ready to rob or to bribe. In short, he was the worst of mortals in peace, but in war a man not to be despised. And, well, he'd just become Vespasian's point man in the war for the Roman Empire. As Primus went west, followed by Mucianus, Vespasian and Titus returned to Caesarea. At the same time, eastern client kings led their forces back home. At Agrippa's court in Caesarea Philippi, the weeks that followed were filled with news of provinces, commanders, and legions declaring for Vespasian. In early November, word came east that Primus's forces had defeated the Vitellians at Cremona and were continuing their march on the capital. Vespasian and Titus were already in Egypt, but now hurried on to Alexandria. Vespasian planned to use his growing land and sea forces to block all North African trade from reaching Italy. But by the end of 69 AD, it was all over. The legions of Primus had conquered Rome in Vespasian's name. Vespasian's brother Sabinus had been executed on Vitellius's orders, but Titus's younger brother Domitian was alive and well. Vitellius was dragged from the palace, thrown down the Gamonian stairs, and torn to pieces by a waiting mob. Vespasian was declared emperor by the Roman Senate, he and Titus accepted dual consulships, and control of Rome passed from the fairly brutal hands of Marcus Antonius Primus to the partnership of Domitian and the Syrian governor Mucianus at least until Vespasian could make the journey there himself. Agrippa and his fellow kings were doubtless gratified at having chosen the winning side. And with the goodwill of the Senate, the legions, and the Roman people, not to mention two male heirs to succeed him, the coming reign of Vespasian looked promising. In preparation for his return to Rome, Vespasian released African grain ships to sail for Italy. But before he left, there was one piece of unfinished business. Agrippa was ordered to bring his auxiliaries to the Judean capital of Caesarea to support the final assault on Jerusalem. Vespasian had given Titus imperium over all eastern forces, and made the Egyptian prefect, Tiberius Julius Alexander, his second-in-command. 
Together they were marching two legions from Alexandria to Judea. When Agrippa arrived in Caesarea, he found the two Egyptian legions had been joined by four others. Vespasian's old legions, the 5th, 10th, and 15th, and the 12th Syrian legion. This last was the one that had been decimated at Beth Haran, now seeking honor and revenge. Leaving the Egyptian legions in Caesarea, Titus marched the 5th, 10th, 15th, and 12th against Jerusalem. The legions were augmented by 20 cohorts of infantry, 8 squadrons of cavalry, and the armies of the eastern kings. While Antiochus had sent his son Antiochus Epiphanes to once again lead Comagenian forces, the Emesenes were personally led by King Gaius Julius Sohamus. Per Titus's battle order, Agrippa and his fellow royals were the tip of the spear, marching their armies at the forefront of the legions. Titus was clearly his father's son. His command style a mix of authority and familiarity, and his actions cautious and deliberate. Moving into Judea with 70,000 men, he kept his troops in strict formation and always ready for battle. Outriders sent to gather intelligence returned with news of desolation. Judea had been neglected for the better part of a year and anyone not clinging to survival in the ruins of their village had long since fled to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's factions had remained entrenched during the Roman Civil War. The zealots, under Eliezer ben Simon, had continued to hold the inner temple courtyard, the forces of John of Geshala, the outer courtyard, and the much larger forces of Simon Bargiora, the balance of the city. Infighting, treachery, and arson had remained the order of the day, and the burning of one another's grain stores had brought the city to the brink of starvation. At some point, John of Gashal had gained entrance to the inner courtyard, by sending in armed men posing as worshippers, then proceeded to slaughter all the zealots. Three factions had become two, and Simon and John crafted an uneasy alliance at news of the Roman advance. Titus divided Roman forces into three camps, effectively surrounding the city. From his position at an elevated site called Scopus, Agrippa had an excellent view. Jerusalem was defended by three circuits of walls. The outer walls had been designed based on the experience of previous sieges. The second set, surrounding the outer temple courtyard and backing onto the Antonia fortress, had been built by his own father, Herod Agrippa I. The inner circuit enclosed a freshwater spring and the Jewish temple rebuilt by Herod the Great with enormous pillars of white marble holding up a cedar roof engraved with intricate patterns. Among the great temples of the Roman East, only those of Jupiter in Damascus, Bel in Palmyra, and Emesene Baal in Heliopolis could claim to rival it in majesty. Agrippa had little doubt that each step in Jerusalem's conquest would be fiercely contested. With the influx of refugees and pilgrims, the city's population had grown massive, and the looting of Judean armories meant that weapons were readily available. 
Simon Bargiora alone commanded 15,000 men, all committed to Jerusalem's defense. Of course, there were many in the city who'd gladly surrender, but were prevented from doing so out of fear of their leaders. In their hopelessness and despair, many put faith in recent prophecies that a man from Judea would come to rule the world. To Agrippa, the prophecy clearly referred to Vespasian, but he sympathized with those trapped in the city. At this point, hope of a miracle was pretty much all they had left. Jerusalem's defenders made the first move, attacking the Roman camp on the Mount of Olives. Titus responded by clearing and leveling the land around the city, and bringing his other camps up closer to the walls. He also sent Josephus to negotiate with Jewish leaders, but they treated him with contempt and drove him off. Titus then began the construction of earthworks and, as Tacitus puts it, made ready every device for storming a town that the ancients had ever employed or modern ingenuity invented. Oddly enough, Jerusalem's defenders also had Roman artillery, seized from Cestius Gallus and the Antonia Fortress, but they weren't really sure how to use it. It was also dwarfed by some of the truly massive contraptions brought to bear by the Romans. Despite spirited Jewish resistance, the Romans succeeded in completing their earthworks and moving their artillery up to optimal range. As enormous stones flew over the walls to demolish buildings and crush defenders, Simon and John put aside their differences and coordinated their defense. They brought torches to the parapets and surged out through secret passages, striving to set the siege engines on fire. For the most part, they were unsuccessful, as Titus sped with cavalry to drive them off. Titus next ordered the erection of massive siege towers, covered with iron plates to protect them from fire. Once these were set in motion, large battering rams were driven against gates and walls, hoping to force an entry. On the fifteenth day of the siege, the outer wall was breached, Jewish defenders were driven back, and the Romans gained control of the north part of the city. For the first time, Titus set up a Roman camp inside the walls of Jerusalem. John of Gashala secured the Antonia fortress and struggled to keep the Romans away from the second wall. It took nine more days of bloody conflict, including one occasion when the Romans were driven from the city, before Titus was able to breach the second wall just west of the fortress. Inside the city, the famine was turning acute, and Simon and John raided private homes for hidden food torturing people when they found it, and also when they didn't, since they figured those people were just better at hiding it. A few brave souls managed to sneak off to the Roman lines, but the majority were caught and executed at the first hint of desertion. In desperation, the people resorted to eating leather, wisps of old hay, and such things as the most sordid animals wouldn't touch. Josephus even hints that some resorted to cannibalism. 
After learning that Jewish militants were hiding among refugees, Titus started capturing and crucifying everyone leaving the city. Roman soldiers performed the act with exceptional cruelty, hoping to crush the spirit of Jewish defiance. But looking out on the forest of dead, the Jewish leadership remained unmoved. In fact, the crucifixions only strengthened their argument. This was a struggle to the death. While storming a city was preferable, Titus also held a few trump cards. Jerusalem was starving to death, and all he really needed to do was encircle the city with a massive wall and let famine take its toll. Inside the city, whole families were wasting away, as militants robbed their houses and killed anyone who resisted. Heaps of bodies cast over the walls gave Titus grim proof that his strategy was working. Things were clearly moving towards some kind of ending. The Romans were one wall away from the outer temple courtyard, and the Jews only weeks from starvation. Before long, Titus began another assault on the Antonia fortress. The Romans managed to break down the wall with a battering ram, only to find a second wall hastily improvised by defenders. Two days later, in the early evening, Roman soldiers slit the throats of the guards and entered the fortress. The blast of their trumpets put the Jews to flight and signaled the legions to rally to the breach. As more and more Romans poured into the city, fierce fighting broke out between the fortress and temple. In the end, the Jews forced the Romans back to the fortress, but it was a Pyrrhic victory. Titus had finally secured Antonia and had a firm Roman foothold in the outer temple courtyard. Over the days that followed, street battles raged in the no-man's land between the temple and fortress. Ominously, each side began setting fires in areas held by the other. All the while, Roman battering rams pounded on the wall of the inner temple courtyard, while Roman engineers worked to undermine its foundation. Each Roman advance was countered by intense Jewish resistance, and legionary losses continued to mount. In response, Titus played his final trump card and set fire to the temple gates. The initial fire was limited and quenched on Titus's orders. Shortly after, he called together his senior commanders and asked their advice for the end game. Some argued the temple was being used as a citadel and, like any enemy fortress, should be burned to the ground. But in the end, it was decided to spare the temple and instead try to capture it with a massive attack. As legates chose their best troops for the final assault, legionaries continued to guard the fortress and quench sporadic fires. But in the wake of another Jewish attack, a centurion set fire to a vulnerable passage. By the time Titus arrived, the process was irreversible, and the Jewish temple was going up in flames. Sensing victory close at hand, Roman soldiers pressed their attack and set additional fires to speed the first. The full fury built up by weeks of frustrating and bloody combat 
not to mention years of frustrating and bloody war, was finally unleashed, and soldiers burst through the burning temple gates. Titus led a detachment into the heart of the temple, wanting to gaze upon its mysteries with his own eyes. Like Pompey before him, he stood awestruck in the Holy of Holies, until a brand hurled by a soldier set the sanctuary ablaze. Returning to the inner courtyard, Titus found himself in a maelstrom of plunder and destruction. The groans and cracks of collapsing roofs and pillars mixed with the triumphant shouts of legionaries and the anguished cries of the city's defenders. For all intents and purposes, it was over. The fire was so massive it had consumed the lower city, and Titus had ordered the raising of everything else. The noose had then tightened around the upper city, until it too was scorched and leveled. In the end, Titus would allow only three towers to remain, to demonstrate how formidable the city would once been and evoke the greatness of his triumph. He'd also spare the western wall to shelter a Roman garrison. The wealth stripped from the Jewish temple would fund the Flavian project and stamp the Roman capital with the monuments of a new era. Both Simon Bargiora and John of Geshala would survive Jerusalem's fall. Considering his impact on events, John's end was anticlimactic. After hiding out in a cave, he surrendered to the Romans for the promise of food. John was quickly arrested, sent to Rome, and spent the rest of his life in prison. As Jerusalem burned, Simon also went underground, literally, and tried to dig an escape tunnel. But when the effort proved fruitless, he appears to have snapped, donning the robes of a Jewish king and emerging from the ground in the ruins of the temple. Simon may have been hoping to bamboozle the Romans into thinking he'd risen from the dead, or something. But the Roman commander was not impressed. He threw Simon in chains and shipped him off to Rome, where he was paraded in a triumph and condemned to death. In the end, the would-be king of Jerusalem met the fate of an enemy ruler, strangulation in the depths of the Tullianum. (laughs) ¶¶